Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. James McKinney, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Oh man, I'm so excited to be here. This is incredible. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a quick summary of your background. Wow. Um, you know, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I launched my own episode of my, my startup story. So as of right now, I'm a creator and host of the startup story, um, similar to what you're doing for those in the finance industry, but really around entrepreneurship and startups and small businesses. Cool. Um, my background uh, is rooted in accounting and finance. So it's kind of funny that I, where I'm at today comes through the same journey that a lot of your listeners are at now. And so, uh, uh, yeah, undergrad accounting in Cal State Fullerton. Um, you know, I took an accounting 101 course in junior college and I thought, well, this is stupid easy. And so I immediately started selling bookkeeping services off of an accounting 101 course. (laughs) So for all the CPAs out there, you're probably just cringing right now. But, um, and so, yeah, so I had a few, uh, uh, bookkeeping clients based on that. And I thought, man, if I'm going to, if I'm going to actually have people pay me for this, I should probably know a little bit more than accounting 101. And so, uh, at that point I shifted gears and I wanted to be a teacher most of my life. I shifted gears completely and uh, pursued accounting in that last semester of school. And I, you know, I put my way through school. I was in the Marine Corps. They helped pay for it. I was working uh, daytime, I'd go to school at night. But last semester, I'll never forget sitting in, uh, I don't know what class it was, but I had 21 units in the last semester because I wanted to be done. I was over. It was like a six-year journey for me. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. And I wish I was a teacher but I was too close to being done. So I just had to finish it. So I finished an accounting degree. And uh, at, this, at that time I was working for a home builder in yep. finance. Um, home building was huge in the early 2000s. Um, I mean, man, it was the heyday of home building. And then uh, from there um, was with a real estate investment firm. Yep. And from the real estate, and again, accounting as well, uh, from the real estate investment firm, um, launched my first business, failed miserably. Uh, which is a, tr- a great story in and of itself um, about endurance and uh, perseverance and just the, the how to handle, how to finance deals is really what that's a story about. And, and then as I was looking at my wounds for that, I uh, went to Disney and uh, Disney hired me uh, operational finance. And uh, as an entrepreneur, am I genetically wired to not sit still for too long? And after a few years with Disney, I uh, started working on a mobile app, left there and, uh, that was in 2015, and so that was probably my lear- my last accounting and finance uh, gig. Okay, so you've been kind of out on your own now for four plus years. Yeah, so I, sales was my first transition out of Disney um, right. because of what I had done in Disney. I was hired by a, a company 
called Vision Media that services all the Hollywood studios. And mm-hmm. what I had done in Disney, I was hired. This is an interesting story. Let's, actually, let's go back further. Let's yeah, go yeah. back. Let's go back all the way to undergrad. So, like accounting finance major. It's. It sounds like by the time you finish, you said, "I don't really want to do this, but I'm graduating. This is what's going to pay the bills. So yeah. I got. I got to do it." So tell me about that when that first week on the job, kind of coming out. Or was it just like? you're just down depressed or were you, <laughs> were you like, Hey, at least I have a job. What was the thought process? Were you, did you at least have time to go out? Cause I know a lot of the users, they go into these high finance careers um, or a lot of listeners and they don't even have time to enjoy their lives outside of work. Did you at least have some stuff you would do? So, so I went to the Marine Corps to pay for college, right? Got so um, my, my college years were not the typical college years. I was, you know, working 40, 50 yep. hours a week and going to school at night, take a quick 20 minute power nap in the parking lot before you go into the evening classes. And I was ready to roll. That was my, those are my college years, power napping. And Got so, um, so I had a job at the end of it, um, within the home building, uh, industry. And I loved the job because I loved the company. And that's yeah. really what it was. It wasn't did, the fun. Why did you love the company? I mean, that's kind of an odd thing. To say. Oh, man. Um, the company was Pulte Homes. At the time, they were the nation's largest home builder. And uh-huh. really, it was the heyday of home building. Like, you couldn't, it's exciting. you know, it, it was exciting because there's a couple things, right? Operationally, we were supporting, you know, you a home builder would buy these lots of land, right? Acres, you know, hundreds of acres. And you'd put up 1,500 homes, right? Well, in the home building industry, you are managing all construction costs and labor allocations down to a, a house level. Right. And so it's, it was fascinating to see how this massive organization can manage. I think at the time was like 35,000 homes a year um, across the nation and, and getting everything down to a house level to know exactly what was the profitability of that house. Um, and because it was the wild West back then, like, you know, the moment a, uh, models now open sign like went up in the in the track like they, people were lining up and you know 80 people deep in line just willing to take whatever house they could because they knew the phases were just going to sell like that fast i mean the early 2000s were just super hot for home building so the parties were outrageous i mean it was i'm not saying it's like wolf of wall street when you watch that it's not like that at all but yeah. but it was it was an incredible time it was an incredible fair. time yeah fair okay so um was it tough to even get this job or they were just hiring bodies at that point? Like you had accounting finance, they were just like, come on in or was the interview tough at all? You know, that's an interesting. See, now, now you're stretching my memory here. Cause I remember, so that job, um, so again, was not my, my first accounting job. I was an accounts receivable, um, yep. uh, rep for a rep or clerk. It wasn't a manager by any means. I think it might've been a title account receivable manager, but there's no people. It was just me, a okay. small company. And, um, and that really was like Wolf of Wall Street, man. That was just like, that was a, a crazy environment. Anyway, so home building was really like my first, what I call my like legit, my first grown up job, if you will. So I how did you transition home. from that AR to the, to that job? Like, how did you actually, you know, um, if there's anything I'm really good at, it's wordsmithing. You know, okay. I, I, I don't, I do not lie, but a janitor is a sanitation engineer. Got right? it. So, <laughs> and, and my resume um, was very well wordsmith that got me the interview, you know, um, in college, you know, it very much, I had my target date on there. So it's like, they knew I wasn't finished yet, but yep. I was in, it was in the last year. So they, they saw the horizon, but they also, at that time I had had my bookkeeping business. I had experience with the accounts receivable, uh, gig I had experience with. So they just saw the years within it. Yep. And then the interview, you know, the interview is so critical. 
And so but that's how tell I got me about job. what was, was the interview tough? Was it just the t- typical behavioral interview questions? Like, tell me about yourself. Tell me a weakness, that type of thing. Exactly. Typical behavioral stuff. And, you know, what, what, you know, what's your weakness, what's your strength. And, okay. and obviously having those canned answers is key, but the thing for me, um, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that I am an extrovert, right? On every single personality test, I am 100% extrovert. I love yeah, people. Yeah. I love their stories. Mm-hmm. And there's a book called Strength Finders 2.0. And if, if, if your listeners haven't, haven't read it, I highly advise reading it because okay. it'll, it'll help you understand the things that you are great at. Therefore, you can, you can bring people around you to fill in the weaknesses. Um, but one of the things that I'm really good at is, is winning people over. There's just... I, I, because I, I think it's because I authentically care about people. So my interviews are very much, you know, them, them asking me these behavioral questions, but the whole time I'm sitting here thinking, well, how can I best serve them? Like, ultimately, ultimately like you, they're wanting someone for this role. So a lot of my answers would come back with a question like, well, as you're evaluating for your hiring for this role, like how does this person you hire bring the most value to you? Mm-hmm. And immediately they're about to disclose exactly what it is they're looking for. And you start using those words back in your language. Right. Oh, we're looking for someone who's a team player and someone who's willing so to, to did not. Those, did those skills come naturally to you though? Is that, that sounds like sales, right? It's yeah, like, it tell me about your, <laughs> tell me about your pain points. And then yeah. you're like, yeah, well this product solves all of those or yeah, this service yeah, yeah. solves all. Is, is, so, is that something naturally that you picked up or did you take any courses? So my, my, my dad is an entrepreneur, right? So I was raised in an entrepreneurial environment. Um, there are certain things that are genetic. Again, you can't make a person um, care about people naturally, right? Like, you know, for right. some people, it is exhausting to be around other people. Yeah. Um, that's not the case for me, right? But um, being raised by an entrepreneur, you know, um, one of the things that I tell my kids all the time now, words matter. So I'm super intentional on word choice. Um, yep. And listener, your listeners should be intentional on word choice as well. Like, just don't, don't go into any interview thinking that you can't allow for a nice breathing pause before you answer and process the words you're about to say, right? I mean, so many times someone asks questions like, so explain a weakness. Well, one of the things, and they go back into this canned response and it's like, right. but you just disregarded the first five minutes where they told you exactly what they were looking for as you fill that role. Right. Um, and it's just being, it's just being a listener and so many people just are not good listeners. Yeah. They have a canned response. They go yeah. into it and they basically aren't actually taking any input or any yeah. feedback from the other person yeah. across the room. It's literally just, okay, I'm going to get through my perfect, my quote, perfect answers, yes. which don't exist. Yeah. And I actually think what's important about the practicing in the mock interviews is not the getting the canned response, right? I think when you get confident and comfortable enough where you can take those pauses yes. and so that, so you're focusing on the delivery and not so much on, you know, the words, you know, the words that are, are around what the words are going to, that are going to come out. Yep. And it's really about the pauses, the connection, yep. the eye contact, all that stuff that's critical for actually yeah. getting an interview. A hundred percent. And the other thing too, you know, man, like there, it's funny, like, so I haven't, I haven't interviewed for a, job for a long time <laughs> a long time i mean let me think here i mean i think disney was 2010 so it's been nine years since i've actually interviewed for a job i think um, longer for me man yeah you know and what's, what's interesting about it, like i remember at the time um saying to myself like man if being a professional interviewee was a thing that's what the job i would want you'd be amazing because in my mind it's just like about meeting people and hearing their stories and and the reason being you know, if there's any 
interview tips. And I apologize if this is not what you were you no 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 I love it. Were seeking after me, but if there's any interview tips that I that I can give to someone listening. The idea should be about conversation. Mm-hmm. Do not go into an interview thinking, I hope I get the questions right. It right. should be about how can I engage the person that I'm talking with? Because if if you leave a memory at the end of that conversation as wow, I enjoyed being with that person, that interviewer automatically is going to look back on their experience with you fondly, and that is what matters. You know, yep. um, I always I always shot for if I can make them laugh once, great. Like I was, I, there's a certain things I looked for. Like can I make them laugh? Can I keep them smiling? Can I get them to answer a question? You know, that was that was friendly, not adversarial, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, again, the weakness one is a great one. Like, you know, um, have a good answer for that. But then in turn say, you know, um, well, that's one of my weaknesses. One of my strengths is about delivering value to my, my bosses. And so, you know, what do you look for in your team members, you know? Right. Um, and then having them deliver that to you. So seek the conversation. Don't just go in thinking that the, the lot, the dies have been cast and you're just going to get whatever you get. No, I agree hundred percent. I think it's, it's critical to, to try and turn it into a conversation, try to make yeah. that personal connection, not just, you know, get through the answers correctly. Yeah. Or yeah. I think people get really nervous about the technical portion of the specifically investment banking interviews. Oh, of course. So they study, it's funny because they get the course and then they focus on the technical module and they're just drilling on the accounting <laughs> questions and then they get in there and they're asked, they're, they're asked to walk, you know, walk with your resume or like tell me a weakness. And they, they like, they're can't, they think these canned responses are good or are good yeah. enough. And it's yeah. like they're missing this huge opportunity <laughs> to actually yep. set themselves apart because everyone else is getting the technicals right yeah. too. It's you know so and yeah. you know and let me ask you from someone who's been in yeah. the the high finance world, mm-hmm. the technical is sometimes very different than the practical. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, all, and oftentimes I, it's just to see if they've done their homework. Yeah. You know, and I think and I think you know it's important to understand that you can have all the technical you want. Mm-hmm. But there's also the practical. So even though you may know all the technical, understand the person you're talking with wants to know that you're a student because they're going to want to bring the practical. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's important to know that investment banking at its core is a sales job too, especially as you get more senior. Oh, and see, then, now, now you're selling me on being an investment <laughs> banker. <laughs> hey, if, if you could get through the rungs of, uh, if you could survive through the, the analysts and associate years, yeah, you'd, you'd be great. <laughs> hey, I saw Wolf of Wall Street. I know how great it is. Yeah. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> So I guess, um, let's go back. So Disney, what was that like? Oh man, that was a great time. Uh, one, there is a dopamine hit that just comes from working with one of the, arguably one of the two or three globally known brands, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Coca-Cola probably being number one, um, yep. Disney being up there. And so that that's just cool to say. I mean, my, my kids were excited to say their dad works for Disney and so, I mean, that was an awesome experience, but I was hired. It was interesting. I was hired, um, again, coming off of a failed business that I had. Um, entrepreneurs are really the least desirable hire for enterprise companies. We're a squirrely batch, right? Yeah. I mean, total flight risk, right? You know, um, but I was, again, back to the interview. Like, I was just, I was candid, you know. I, I, I shared the challenges that my family was going through because of it, and and that, um, so did you have to take out a lot of debt? Were you in the whole, oh, I, I lost everything. I mean, I, I, I had, I did the loss the, of, what was the startup? Talk to me about that. So that business was a printing and promotional product, uh, brokerage. And so as companies like Disney needed mm-hmm. branded product, 
Yeah. Um, it was my job to source it and I was the middleman. I'd get margin on top of that. Yeah. Um, I was one of 12 uh, that, were, that were able to participate in a $100 million contract with LA County. And so um, I started this at age 30, I think it was. Yep. And um, I had good success fairly early on. And obviously there's a lot of arrogance and pride that can come with that. And I didn't have mentors most of my life, my entire life, my, my story. And, and maybe you can, can include a link to my startup story episode where I unpack this in even greater detail. But most of my life is defined by just trying to figure it out because I didn't have mentors. What about your you dad? Uh, well, my, my, I'm a child of a divorce. So my dad was part-time, right? Like, you know, I yeah. got to visit him on the weekends and be around him. So I got to see what he did. Got there it. wasn't, the, there wasn't the dialogue, right? There wasn't the yeah. conversation of, of how do you finance this deal? What are some creative ways to finance a deal? Like, you know, um, purchase order lending, things like that. Like I didn't know any of those things. Right. Um, and so I got this, I got this deal that was a $600,000 in uh, purchase order. I had 50% margin on it. Like it was a healthy, healthy deal. Yeah. But in my mind, I needed the cash to fund it. So I, you know, I had drained the 401k. I had maxed out the credit cards. I had leveraged the house. I, I had it all in to, to fund 300,000. And in all government contracts, there is a clause that is a cancellation without cause clause. And um, again, in my mind, as a young person, thinking that what government agency is going to cancel a contract? This is crazy. Right. Like this, this is not the contract that gets canceled. Like maybe a freeway construction or something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm getting product made in China, had to send a 50% deposit. So 150 K goes out mm -hmm. I'm ready products ready. Uh, the final payment goes out three days after that final payment goes out. I get a letter in the mail within the 10 seconds it took to open that letter. Cause I knew it was on the other side. I lost everything. And there was no recovering it. China wasn't giving my money back. That no, they weren't. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't talk to LA County, and they, they kept referring back to the cancellation clause. And and uh, and there's a whole you know other side story as to why that canceled. But again, just completely over leveraged myself. Not not seeking mentorship to understand like what are some ways to creatively finance this. Um, you know, at the time, the idea of just you still probably would have been on the hook though. Even if uh, now, if I were to ever get that, that deal there, yeah. I could, I could think of three immediate ways in which I would finance that without leveraging anything that I had. Right. Wow. Obviously, uh, first one way. receivable financing is the first thing. Okay. So right? tell me about I mean, that. That's, that's interesting. So receivable financing, um, you just, for, you, just, you have an invoice or a purchase order from a client. You, yep. There are companies out there that yep. will lend mostly up to 80%. That, that seems to be 80% seems to be like the industry average. Um, okay. Some are less, um, but it all has to do with what is their safety net, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, LA County would have, would have been a fairly safe safety net. Um, right. The cancellation clause probably would have gone to 80% financing down to maybe 60% financing. But that would have covered um, 3,300K you needed. Exactly. That would have covered exactly yeah. what I needed, right? So, um, so that's part of it. But again, there's, there's, you know, they make good it's margin. A, it's pretty expensive, right? It's, it's not, pretty. it's not cheap. Right. But again, I had $300,000 on the deal. Play with, I, yeah. I would have been totally fine. I didn't know about this at all at the time. You, you would know, have the been other, fine taking 250 or whatever. Exactly. Or whatever the other, the other thing too is like, there are high net worth individuals out there that are just looking for the easy deals, you know, within the space I was playing with, I'll never forget it. Um, I, government was what I focused on at the time. Yep. And so in the government space, I started seeing the same people over and over again. Well, one guy 
that was winning these deals that I couldn't touch because sometimes his, his uh, selling price was what my costs were. And what he was doing, he was, uh, we were, I was in, based in Southern California at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was this, this um, elderly Jewish guy down in Lake Forest. Mm-hmm. And all he was doing, he didn't have, he didn't invest anything into stocks or anything like that. Yeah. His retirement was simply turning deals like this. So he would take a $3 million deal on a 5% margin right. and turn it within 90 days. That's, that, that's good money in 90 days on a th- yeah. <laughs> so um and he would just do these and again as someone who's trying to you know support a family build a business not just can i yeah. fund this year right um you just couldn't compete with those things so there are, but i'll say there are people out there like that that just have money like hey well if in 90 days i can get a 10 percent return which take that out take that out across the year you're looking at a, you know 30 to 40 percent return like they'll do that all day long yeah no, that makes so, sense. Yeah, it's tough to compete there. It's hard. It's hard. But again, uh, at thirty, the things you don't know are the things that can hurt you. Which is why I'm all about. And it's why I love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Is with Wall Street Oasis that the idea of just mentorship and information, like, yeah, mentorship is so critical. Yeah. So you're you're basically, t- you know, you lick your you're licking your wounds trying to get out from under this. Yes. Did yes. you what What was the product that you were getting made? First of all, what was it? USB drives. So okay. oh, oh, for the, for LA County, yeah, the yeah. USB drives. So USB, USB drives have LA County Sheriff on them. That's all I said. That's all oh it was. Oh my gosh! So they get sent, they get sent to you, or like where? Yeah, <laughs> they still got, have these. <laughs> they got sent to me. I I don't have them now. They got sent to me, and they weren't even. So this is man, like this is gonna make this is gonna make uh, it makes me feel old saying it, but it's definitely gonna make some people be like. So now you can buy like a sixteen or you can buy a thirty-two gig USB drive for like sixteen dollars, right? Right. Like now, I mean, yeah, yeah. store storage is is a commodity. Yeah. Back then, to get a one gig USB drive was going to cost you about thirty dollars, wow. right? So this was an imprinted USB drive that wasn't even a gig; it was like five hundred k or something like. Like it was, yeah, yeah. you know, it was it was crazy. So yeah, so no, I had a I had a very large supply of USB drives for quite a while. Yes. And what did you do with those? How I mean, you-, you know, tried to sell some via eBay, you know, yeah. um, uh, you know, it was just, it was a slow process. I couldn't get rid of all of them. It reached a point where it was donation. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you had a lot of USB drives. Yeah. A lot you of basically USB drives. start interviewing right away. What was the thought? Right process? away. So once I told my yeah. wife we were losing everything, cause she was a stay at home mom. Yeah. You know, once I told my wife we were losing everything, um, you know, that was a hard conversation nonetheless, but immediately I knew I had to get back on the horse and provide for my family. And so it was just about you have going to my business network. Kids, at that time, two kids. Two kids, okay. Um, and I was still two kids, but at the time we had two kids. Yeah. The, you know, immediately went through my, through my LinkedIn profile and just started like seeing everyone I was connected with on what relationships were there and just started, yeah. you know, and reaching out to them saying, hey, um, shutting down the business, looking for something for the next couple of months, you know, and it was the next couple of months. Like I wasn't looking for something long term. Partially, I was looking for the next couple of months. Sometimes a temp hire is a lot easier than yeah. um, than getting a full time gig. And at the time, it was the latter part of the year, so the holidays were coming up. So it was just it was yeah. kind of a, a good positioning. So I, you know, I'm all about connections and networking. So my first stop was not the the open market. It was all about who do I know. Um, yep. And, and from there, I got that job, and I was miserable at it. I hated it. Um, not Disney. This was with a um, semiconductor company. Okay. Um, hated it. The culture was toxic. It was, it was an absolute horrible experience. 
Okay. And somehow, some way, I couldn't tell you how it was, an opportunity at Disney came across my desk and I submitted for it. And um, Disney's one of those places where if you don't know someone, like don't even apply, don't even bother. Like yeah. you've, got, you've got to know someone. And, and knowing someone could simply be being connected to one of their recruiters on LinkedIn. Um, but I didn't know anybody. I just right. submitted for it. And sure enough, I got an interview and I was like, this is unbelievable. Like, yeah. And, and <laughs> um, yeah. And in the interview, uh, I was meeting with an executive um, and he said, so, you know, I see you had your business, you know, what happened there? And I explained it to him and he's like, so where do you see yourself in, you know, in 10 years? And I was like, well, to be honest, I said, 10 years, I couldn't tell you. I said, but you know, I, I can definitely tell you three years I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was just candid, you know, because again, the idea for recruiters, recruiters even say, will tell you in enterprise companies that they aren't keen on hiring people that had past businesses because right. they, again, they just know there's an itch that has to be scratched and I don't care what you do in an enterprise company. It's not going to. So you were there for a while though. I was there you five actually, years. You kept your yeah, word. I did. <laughs> well, three years I kept was about keeping my word for yeah, sure. Okay. But you the the fourth and fifth year, yeah. um, uh, I stayed on because around that fourth year mm-hmm. I is where this idea for my next startup started percolating. Um, and because of what I had taken my family through at that time, just four years before, I wasn't about to just jump ship. And you were a little trigger shy. You're like, exactly. Like, I was just like, more. let me figure this out. And, you know, let me, let me find different ways to finance it. And so that's where I started, you know, uh, friends and family fundraising and mm-hmm. things like that. And so, um, but my gig at Disney was amazing. I got hired um, to oversee the revenue operations for the Disneyland resort. So, really it was about the reconciliation of what do the POS terminals say versus what does the currency vault receive? Like where's the reconciliation of the cash management? And that was my gig for about 90 days. And then at the okay. 91st day, my executive calls me in his office. Like, so you used to run your own business, right? I said, yeah. He's like, how would you like to start a brand new business inside of Disney? I'm like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Yes. That sounds awesome. (laughs) And sure enough. So I got to, I got to build an entirely uh, new profit center inside of Disney where, um, as the company specifically parks and resorts didn't need assets anymore. So ride vehicles, uh, animatronic figures, signage, branded assets, as they didn't need things anymore. I got to work. I got to build an infrastructure that had appropriate handling with high net worth individuals, uh, internal uh, secured auction sites. I got to build an entire profit center around selling Disney, highly, highly sought after Disney assets. Interesting. So you were awesome. bring, you were basically almost like having an internal e- eBay for Disney yeah. signage and all this stuff, which I'm sure is super high demand. Oh, uh, built. Oh, oh, dude. Like the, the <laughs> demand for Disney branded things is crazy. This is how, this is how crazy it is. Yeah. John Stamos, uh, for those that may know him as Uncle Jesse uh, yeah. from Full House, and I'm sure he's done more recent stuff, but he'll always be Uncle Jesse. But John Stamos <laughs> is um, a huge Disney guy. Yep. He paid a hundred thousand, again, some of these stories are creepy. This is just on the verge of creepy and weird at the same time, but he paid a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> to have a WDI, which is the Imagineering arm of Disney, build a replica doll of the small world dolls. So you're going in a small world, those creepy little dolls that are singing yeah. to you and get the song stuck in your head that will never go away, um, which would be funny if you, if you lay that track on the background of yeah, this as sure. talking, so it gets stuck <laughs> in people's head. But um, you know those dolls, right? It wasn't even one that was used in the park. It was just a replica. I paid $100,000 for it. Like a whole set of dolls, I hope? Just one doll. No way. 
so wait so you guys were doing more than just selling what was old or used you were actually doing like special orders and stuff that like? didn't go through me that, okay. that that was he happened to know like not bob Iger, the ceo but he like knew that echelon of people and yeah. so it was that was like one of those weird requests that he just made okay. direct um the things that went through me are like the matterhorn bobsled vehicles or the um the hitchhiking ghosts at the end of the haunted mansion tour um yeah. like those things working with you know um, a high net worth individual out of LA that, you know, paid $45,000 for those. And, you know, Got it. Behind those. So, yeah, that was my gig. <laughs> it was awesome. I loved it. And really it's just building something out of nothing. One, it restored me as a person to know that I still have the ability to do something. Right. Um, it gave me a chance to get my feet grounded again for my family. And then um, lastly, it allowed me to see my employer as really that first investor to help me start saving up, you know, um, time and money for what would ultimately be my next venture. So that's really, you know, how much, I, you, I, I how much did you feel safe with to kind of go out on when, and, and you had a, you said you started raising a f- friends and family around for your next thing, but it's still gotta be scary after losing everything. Was your wife on board? Yeah, she, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> let me think about this one. Real quick. This is five years now. I would hundred percent say she's on board. Um, five yeah. years ago, let me think here. Was she fully on board? Yeah, she was comfortable because so I had raised about 140,000 mm-hmm. uh, friends and family. Again, I don't come from money. So yeah. some, some friends and family rounds are in the millions. That's not my story. Um, and so, you know, my next, the reason I left Disney was to work for, like I said, Vision Media to help do what I was doing for Disney for all the studios. Well, the, um, the founder of Vision Media was uh, one of my advisors uh, to the mobile app technology. And so part of the agree- agreement was, I help um, build this business inside of his business as well as work on my mobile app. So it was kind of like a, it was, I had a salary with him. I had friends and family around and I had more freedom to continue to work on my things. So yes, my wife was on board because of what that arrangement was. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a great arrangement. So you kind of like you, how did that come about where you found that other opportunity to actually, was it you going, so taking what you did at Disney and, and taking it to the other. Platform? So so that's interesting, right? Were, Again, were you I, like, were you the one looking for that or was it something? No, like, this is, this is one of those, one of those, uh, serendipitous moments. I was, so again, I built this business inside of Disney, right. um, parks and resorts was the first. Do you, um, can you share what the revenue was overall of, of that? Uh, yeah. By the time I left, it was 4 million a year. Um, just one business entity. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't get to see ESPN numbers. So like, right. As I helped with, um, ESPN with a Jimmy V auction, that uh, that revenue went to ESPN, so I don't get previewed to those right. numbers. Right. Um, Disney ABC Group was another. Um, I never got to work within Marvel. Marvel was rogue; like they did their own thing. They did their thing, which which pissed me off a ton of time because they would just sell Iron Man suits when they. When it's like, wait a second, dude, you can't just be selling Iron Man suits. We got to talk about this. So yeah, uh, yeah, Kevin Feige was he's he's a rogue warrior. But at any rate, um, so while I was building this inside of parks, uh, AB, Disney ABC Television Group reached out to me and said, hey you're the only one doing this in Disney. Can you help us sell stuff? I'm thinking to myself, like maybe like a set from a show. No, no, no. They had like 60,000 square feet of a warehouse of just stuff they'd been storing for years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I go out to the warehouse. Well, the warehouse was owned by Vision Media. They were just the vendor storing everything. Mm-hmm. And there is where I met the, um, the founder and CEO of Vision Media, Michael Alvarez. And the introduction was made. Um, and he comes down an uh, hour and a half away to... Orange County and we get lunch and he's like, just so you know, you're the only one doing this inside of all of Hollywood. 
And I was like, what? That can't be the case. And so sure enough, um, Disney, I was the only one doing it. So he hired me to help him build another. Cause I mean, in his was warehouse, Disney, was this part of Disney? This is not, so ABC you're... was part of Disney. Yes. Okay. Okay. Vision so... media was not. And so when he invited me over, um, to do it for his business, I mean, the things he had in his warehouse were unbelievable. The, the twilight movie series, he had all the assets from twilight in his warehouse. Um, the original Batman Batmobile, he had that in his Oh warehouse. my gosh. He had so many bats. I mean, there were so many assets he had from every single studio. Um, so I left Disney to help him build that inside of all the um, movie studios. And did you ever think to ask him. for, did you ever think of a, an ask of like, hey, I'll take a percentage of whatever I sell? You know, at the time, no. And the reason being was for my next pursuit was the mobile app. Okay. Was, this, was this mobile technology I was building? And so this was really just a conduit to get there. Got it. Um, okay. it, was, it was not something I was looking at long-term. Um, needless to say, I was there for a year. We couldn't get, um, the closest I got was for another studio was Paramount. A new Ninja Turtle movie was coming out and they were doing some really cool in-theater marketing stuff. Okay. Um, that was the closest I got, but they just were gun-shy about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people kept telling me, well, we're not Disney. People don't want it. I'm like, you're crazy. Like people want all of your DC stuff. People want yeah. Ninja Turtle stuff. People want yeah. <laughs> Top Gun, Paramount. I mean, there were so many brands. And, yeah. uh, you know, this Disney has done a really great job of building up how significant their brand is that I truly believe the other studios have forgotten how significant their brand is. Yeah, so, no, that's a good point. Okay, so you're, so you're there. You're kind of in this middle transition period with tell me about this mobile tech and kind of what was the evolution of it? And so, the second so, attempt. Yeah. So the mobile, the, the mobile tech, um, I was convinced that people were tired of using their camera for identification purposes, like right, augmented reality, right? Mm-hmm. If you, at the time in Yelp, um, instead of just what's around me kind of thing, you can open up a camera feature and identify the that. restaurant. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. The idea of using a camera to identify something is super clunky. Like I just, I still don't understand the appeal for it. Um, but I was convinced that the technology existed where you could use your phone like a television remote. Like you simply point your phone at it and push a button and mm-hmm. it will tell you everything about that location. Ultimately that object that you're pointing at. So mm-hmm. picture yourself, you know, down uh, on main street, USA, wherever you're living and there's a restaurant and you want to know what the wait time is. Just point your phone, push a button. You'll see menus, see photos from Instagram on it. You'll see a wait time. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some uh, current reviews from Google because I hate Yelp. Yelp is the devil for small businesses. <laughs> um, and so I would never, I would never have uh, integrated with Yelp, but just Google. But again, with a push of a button, you see it. No use of camera, right? Imagine okay. yourself on vacation. You're like, hey, there's the Eiffel Tower. Push a button and you see, you know, historical information on the Eiffel Tower, construction information, whatever the case may be. It was all, the idea was getting the information you want with a single push of a button. None of this around me, none of this filtering through lists, none of this. Would it it need an app to, would you have to open an app to get there? Exactly. None of the, um, none of the cell phone providers would make it native, right? I mean, I, Apple... Apple controls everything that, that, that at the time the home button did. Now there's no home button anymore. Um, right. You know, and in fact, all of the, most of the phones now don't even have a home button. So yes, it did reside in an app and that's where I had to build an app. The challenge with mobile technology, one, we were able to build out the first concept of it. We were able to really nail out the user experience of pushing a button. So mm-hmm. we were able to get to that. 
the challenge comes in the monetization side of it. And this just has to do with market research, which I didn't do well enough. Yeah. Um, you know, I started with restaurants because when you think about how you use your phone, most people listening are probably like, well, yeah, I'm always looking for a place to eat. Like yeah. That's just the use case of what people are using phones for. Picture taking and yeah. food. And sometimes yeah. it's picture taking of food. And so, <laughs> yeah. and so, um, so I was going after restaurants first. Let me provide restaurant information because I don't get users to use the app because I'm giving them great stuff. Well, the, I still need money in that, right? It's one right. thing to say you have users, but gone are the venture capital days where they're just going to give you money because you have users. Yep. Um, those days, are, that ship has sailed. You don't now think nowadays? Want, you don't think nowadays? It's, it's uh, <laughs> About users? No, like now, even still, even inside like, like when, you know, obviously I'm going to make your Snapchat, right? Uh, that was probably a couple of years ago, so that's a little dated. Um, Brex. Brex is a new uh, credit yep. card for startups, right? Um, they are the bell of the ball with what they're doing inside of fintech. Um, and what they're doing is amazing, but they're also monetizing. You know, and one of the things that, that they'll say from the get-go is um, the idea of users is great, but can you monetize your user base? Well, the unit, you know, unit economics specifically there at least has to be a path toward. Yeah. I mean, look at um, uh, Foursquare, right? Uh, the guy's, the founder's name used to be on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of it anymore. You know, he raised $175 million before they ever saw a dollar. Right. And last I checked, and again, dated information, as of last year, they weren't profitable. Like, yeah. so, I mean, it's just, you know, the VC is just not going to keep throwing at money at things. And then again, of course, look at the, um, uh, what was the name of that, that uh, Palo Alto med fraud? Um, oh, yeah. I saw that. Ther Theranos. Ther Theranos. Yes. Thank Ther you. Right. I mean, so again, <laughs> you know, they've got to see your ability as a founder to be able to execute and monetize. Um, that's yeah. the biggest thing. So. so tell me, so how long did that go before friends and family round ran out? And you said, okay, I'm back to, what was the next step? You said, I'm back to Disney. What was the thought? I so mean, it lasted about a year. Yeah, yeah. okay. The, um, after Vision Media, I then, uh, the software development company that was building my app, um, again, it's just, it's, if there's anything I could point to as far as why I'm not homeless on the street somewhere, it's, <laughs> It's, it goes back to likability, like wherever you are, for all your listeners, no matter what job you have, no matter who you interact with, you have to maintain likability. Yeah. Um, like you, you just, you can't treat people as a commodity. Um, and I see, I see too many people doing that, right? They will, they're in a company for, we'll say five years and then they have great relationships and then they jump ship and it's like, oh, those people don't matter to me anymore. It's like, no, yeah. no, no. Like, you, you have got to maintain relationships because these are people. They're not parcels. Like you just, you have to treat. That reminds me of a, a meme. I think I saw yesterday of, it was an investment banking meme and it had an MD saying, um, it, what's, what's wrong with him? The doctor says he's in a coma. Okay. Well, let me know when he wakes up. So we need this pitch deck out by midnight. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like you, you just, you have to, you have to maintain relationships and, and, and keep those bridges open. And so all I have to say is my development firm, uh, they really liked me and they were developers, right? So they're not people, people, they're not people right. that, that like to, uh, uh deal with uh, sales, if you will. Yep. And so they were like, Hey, we're building your app. You really like dealing with people and sales. Why don't you come do that for us? And I was like, Oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Yeah. And so, um, so then that helped extend the, 
the development of my app as well as provide income for the family while doing it. Um, and that lasted for about two and a half years. The, me working for them lasted for two and a half years. The app died within, I want to say, 10 months of me working there just because they reached a point where you have to call the bleeding. Like you just got to shut it out at some point. And, yeah. and I, I couldn't keep dumping money back into it because I, well, I visually saw how to monetize. I couldn't execute. I couldn't get yeah, the, get the, the restaurants there. Um, I couldn't get the partnerships that I've been working for so long to commit. Mm-hmm. Um, I even tried to negotiate an acquisition of the technology um, that couldn't get that down. I just had to, had yeah. to shut it down. That's tough. That's tough to let go. It is. And you know, again, for, you know, not, not, maybe there are some listeners that are, have contemplated all kinds of different mobile ideas. The app, the app business is dead. Like just don't build a mobile app for the sake of a mobile app. If you have another business and an yeah. app complements it, then build an app. Don't build an app thinking that is your business. Like that's just, that, that ship has sailed. Yeah, WSO, we, after clamoring for, I don't know, probably a decade, our members were clamoring for a mobile app. We finally released one. We have about 10,000 downloads within a few months. I'm like, oh, yeah. I've probably done that five years ago. Yeah, right. And it's a compliment to what you're doing. And it's that's, that's, yeah. makes, it makes yeah. sense. And we have yeah. an app. So that's the, that's the reason for apps these days. It complements an existing business. Yeah. So, okay. So you're kind of at, you're acting as you're back in, you're in sales, you're in your natural element. (laughs) Why, why leave this development shop? So when I was with the development shop, um, they'd been around for nine years prior to me. So Mm -hmm. still uh, a new small business, great people, great founders, everything. Uh, They'd been in their, their region, their Valley for, for the entire time they they had been there for 15 years prior to starting the business but they were not the name within the valley for technology if someone were to think of software development they they were not the name for it and and i didn't understand why because they were really good developers and and really great people and so i thought well let's start making a name let's start making a, a brand for for you to be the technology hub of santa Clarita valley and so i started doing these live events um, where we would feature founders, um, big name founders, you know, um, yeah. uh, Rahul Sanaa from TestLoop. Uh, he was trying to create a um, really a point-to-point transit line using Teslas. Uh, incredible, incredible company. Uh, Barry, Baron Davis, uh, founder of Black Santa, former NBA All-Star. Yeah. Um, just uh, Larry Namer from Entertainment Television. Rachel Hollis, who's a big deal now. Just tremendous founders. Um, they would come and unpack their story. And so we'd have you know, about a hundred people showing up in our office to just hear these stories. So we were, we were slowly becoming that. And, and I loved it. I mean, again, being a people person, love yeah. the storytelling, love hearing the journey. Again, the mentorship that comes with those conversations, it was, it was awesome. And so about 10 years or 10 months in or 10 events in, um, I'm sorry, about nine events in, mm-hmm. uh, the founder of the software development company said, Hey, shut it down. We're not seeing any revenue from it. Again, I'm in sales. And I said, I know, but this is the long game. Like this is, this is not, we're not trying to do something quick. This is the long game. It's like, no, no, shut it down. So 10th event happened. We shut it down. Hmm. And I, it just, it bummed me out to no end. I loved doing it. Loved every bit about it. And then the last event. How much was it costing per event to put on? Oh, the the events were profitable. So what did you Just just not, just not, I mean, I hit profitable, meaning it didn't cost the company anything. It wasn't like we were making anything. Yes. Right. Anything significant whatsoever. I mean, it, you know, was it, it covering paid, your salary? No, 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 not at all. Not okay. All. Um, so, but, the, but I, was, I was doing sales as well, you know, right. like, and so, so it wasn't that, it's just, 
certain people just have short-term thinking. And this was yeah. one of those short-term thinking mindsets. It was, well, I don't see an invoice within six months. So let's cancel it. Got it. And all that to say, two months after we canceled it, a relationship that I developed because of it, I closed half a million dollars in business. So again, yeah. long-term thinking, the thing, it, play, it pays off. It would have paid off. <laughs> yeah, completely. So anyways, the last event, three people came up to me and said, hey, do you have a podcast? If you did a podcast, I'd listen to it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I knew the event was shutting down. I had this need to keep going. So I told my founders, I said, hey, I'm going to do a pod. If you're shutting this down, I'm going to do a podcast. And um, they were like, they were fully supportive of it. Like, yeah, you do a podcast. Great. I even helped the founder um, set up a podcast for he and his son about gaming because he's into esports. And so fully supportive. Um, And I was doing this just to fill a need, right? This, I created the startup story podcast, just fill a need of just me meeting with founders. And so um, I'm still doing sales for the company about six months in. So June of this, let me think here, June of 2019, Mm -hmm. I get an email from a UK listener says, Hey, just so you know, you're number 11 in the UK. And I'm like, what? Like I, again, I had tracked no data on anything. It right. was just, I was doing this cause I love to sit with founders. And, um, and so I, uh, sure enough, I find a third party service that can tell me where I'm at, um, across the platforms. And I was uh, number three in the UK and I was, uh, approaching top 100 in Australia and us. Awesome. Those are my most significant ones. Um, I was like, at the, t- at the time I was like, you know, number 200 in Kazakhstan, not sure why, but <laughs> nevertheless. So, um, so I created a little social graphic. Um, and if I'm, uh, going too far down the rabbit hole, no, 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 I like this. I like this. No, so I, cr- I, cr- I create this little social graphic, just talking about the success of the show. First time I ever saw ratings and I get, I get word that there's some murmurings in the office. I'm, I'm in Texas at this time. I had moved my family. I was tired of California. And yeah. the company's still in California. So I get some murmurings at the head office that they're, they're bothered by the success of the show. Again, yeah. I'm in sales. You can tell if I'm distracted or not. Like yeah. I'm either delivering or I'm not, right? So, and, uh, so then a publicist reaches out to me and says, hey, I just saw your, your post. I would love to represent you. And, and um, it's a publicist I've worked with since my mobile days. And um, her name is Monique. I call her Mo. I'm like, Mo, I can't pay you. I'm bootstrapping. She's like, no, no. I'll find you sponsors on some percentage of sponsors. I'm like, done. It doesn't cost yeah. anything. Great. <laughs> so we start creating our sponsorship kit. August comes around. So now two months later, she's like, hey, I need updated numbers um, and rankings for the kit. So I go on and look. And now I find out I'm number three in the UK and I'm top 10 in the US and Australia. That's awesome. I'm like, what is happening here? Like, again, all of this is just organic. Yeah. And awesome. so, um, and so I create a new graphic promoting it. Well, within a week of that graphic going live, I get a call from the head office that they, you know, well, we, need, we need to chat. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting about that, after I heard murmurings and from June, I tell my wife, right, we're coming on the 10, this no, November was a 10 year anniversary of us losing everything. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it's one of those things you just never forget. And so I asked her in early August, I said, if they ever asked me to give up the podcast, what would you, what would you say? Mm-hmm. And she just looked at me. She's like, no, you can't give up the podcast. I'm like, okay, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Cause you know, <laughs> like, that's she, not happening. Yeah. And, and, and she's like, no, I, why would they ask? Me? I don't know. I just, I feel like there might be some resentment towards the, just the success of the show. Going back to the live events, right? 10 months. Yeah. In, they want to can't, can't I, yeah. I don't, I don't get it. 
I don't get it because was was the show ever bringing in them bringing them any business like through your connections or no? So it was no. your own thing. It was your own side project. It was my, it was my own thing completely. Um, right. But again, okay. I was You're selling, selling, right? Yeah. So, yeah. and so uh, August comes around, they call and they're like, hey, we feel like you're distracted because of the podcast. And uh, I said, well, if you remove podcasts from the conversation, do you feel like I'm distracted? Mm-hmm. And uh, instead of answering the question, they simply said, if we asked you to give up the podcast, would you? And I said, no. And they said, okay, well, we think we know what the next steps are. What's funny about it, back to short-term thinking, had they simply said, we think you should include ads for our company, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. You know, just to keep it going a little bit longer, but no. Nevertheless, that was, uh, I've been full-time on the startup story now for, since uh, September of this year, and it's been tremendous. We're now in live event planning mode, and there's lots of things nice. in the works, so. I get to meet great people like yourself now. It's exciting, man. It's exciting. It's scary and exciting at the same time. Um, I think, you know, hats off to you. I think ideally you can do stuff like you did the first time around where you're bridging. I kind of did the same thing where I was building up Wall Street Oasis during, while I was working in private equity and it wasn't bringing in any money or very little. And I knew when I went to business school, I had a very kind of short window of time to figure out, okay, am I going to go back to work? Or am I going to kind of just try and roll the dice with this thing? And it got to the point where it was bringing in enough revenue. I was like, okay, I'm not going to starve. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, can, I can survive off this and, and then have freedom. So yeah. I think it's exciting. Um, and you were, you, you were kind of ahead of your time too, because the idea of providing value content as a business model like that online, especially like, it, it was new, right? You, again, this is what I'm doing now within entrepreneurship, yeah. but you were doing it for Wall Street Oasis long before. So I, I love, yeah, I mean, I love really, how you were venturing. It was forward. really a platform though. It wasn't even me providing a lot of value. It was really the users themselves providing a lot of value. You know, so like, better. yeah, so it's, I mean, well, the good part about that is you don't have to hire a team of writers. Yeah. Like when you're, when you're only bringing in a thousand dollars a month, you can't hire a team of writers, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the beginning. So, um, you know, it's, it's been a really interesting evolution of the business. And as we've professionalized and as the business has grown, it's, I think it's great. But for your, for your story, I mean, I can't believe that after kind of going through what you went through, you still rolled, rolled the dice. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love it. I, it's almost like you can't help, you can't help but do it. You have something that's unique. You know, your strengths really well. Um, and maybe that book, what was the name of that book again that you recommended? Strength Finders 2.0. Strength Highly recommend Strength finders. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it is one of the most transformational books I've ever read. Um, it, it, because it, it cha- shifts the focus all too often. You hear about what are you weak at and train that, right? Like think about physical training, right? Like, Oh, you know, my, I'm, I'm really, I have weak leg, I have chicken legs. So I got to do squats all day and leg presses, right? right? You, you look at your weak points and you focus on them. strength finders flips the script and says, no, no, what you, what are you great at? Continue to be great at those things mm-hmm. and then understand the people that you're working with or hiring, find the people that are great at the things you're weak at. Right. You know, and it's just, it's, it really is about celebrating the things that we're independently great at. And I love it. But yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, as I tell my story more and more, and again, in my episode, you'll hear the, the great detail of the pain and suffering that came from losing everything in the conversation with my wife and everything. But mm-hmm. as I tell that story more and more, I realize that, there is a part of us that we are innately created to create, you know, it's at various degrees, right? Even inside yeah. of 
you know, when I was, when I didn't think I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I was just in accounting. Like I was constantly trying to create new processes, trying to create some levels of improvement for things. Um, right. Great. I was trying to create dashboards that had greater visibilities for executives. Like we're wanting to create something. And then as for myself, it was, there is a level of comfort that comes with the instability mm-hmm. that is entrepreneurship. You know, yeah. And that's, that's why it resonates there with is. me. There is. And I think, well, for me, it's the freedom too. Yeah. The base waking up and, and then the challenges that the variety of challenges that you face yes. every day yes. keeps it really interesting. Whereas if you're coming into the office every day, doing the same type of work year after year after year, it can get really hard. Yeah. Get, you know, it can be tough if you're dreading Mondays. Um, it's, it's a tough life. You know, we're Dude, only there's, there's, there are too many great things out there that if, there you, are. if you wake up and your soul is already sucked, like you have got to find something else. And I mean it like, this is not, I'm not mocking the individual that, that, um, you know, it has a nine to five and, and they're providing for their family. I love that. Um, but if you, if you hate what you're doing, Mm -hmm. figure something else out, either turn that opportunity into something great or go find something better. I think it's it's hard because a lot of people that come into these high, you know, highly competitive careers, they've followed a path for their whole life. So it's very different from you. It's they've, they've, they're on the path of the top, you know, valedictorian of their high school or near the top yeah. of their high school. Then they're going to a target school or a semi-target school. They're having to get near the top of their class, getting a three, five, three, seven GPA. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're prep, they're prepping for interviews. They're doing the modeling, you know, they're, they're driving and driving and driving. Then they get there and they're like, I made it. And they sit, <laughs> they sit in the seat and then they're like, wait a second, I'm working 80 hours a week. I'm sleeping at my desk what's the meaning of all of this? Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, especially at that age, it's like a quarter life crisis age. You don't really know. Like, <laughs> so I had this conversation once, um, and with just a, a local friend and they were, there used to be a time when people would get out of college and they would have that one career for 30, 40 years. Right. I mean, my best friend has been with Boeing since it's his only professional job he's had outside of college. And, and he loves it and, and he gets to work on some really cool things, yeah. but none of which I can speak to about on this. But um, those are, those are the anomalies, right? But we look at it with such esteem as though like that's the way to go about it. But here's, here's the part that I get hung up on. And I, and I hope that your listeners will, will process this, this picture for a moment here. If you're 35 or 40 years old, are you going to leave your future up? to the knowledge and experience of a 22-year-old? No, you're not. But that's the reality of what we do most times when we, when we allow whatever our trajectory is coming out of college at 22 mm-hmm. to be the single lane in which we drive for the rest of our life. That yeah. 22-year-old doesn't have the knowledge and awareness or nor the network, nor the perspective of economics at a macro level, you know, or understand a self-awareness of what it is you want to do with your life at 22. They just don't have that. And yet we stay on that same train the whole time. Like there is, it is perfectly okay to reevaluate every few years. And I think that's more common nowadays. I think people are doing that. Um, I think the banks don't like it. (laughs) They have an attrition problem and everyone jumping from, well, people still following the path IB to private equity or hedge funds. Yeah. But, um, no, it's been, it's been really interesting to hear your story. I think, I think it'll be different. It's a different type of episode for everybody to hear that there, there are other ways to success and there's Absolutely. other ways. 
there are there are a million ways. Again, you know, I go I I I mention this type of this person all the time, but there are people on Etsy that are probably investment bankers that are making another two hundred thousand dollars selling etched Yetis. Okay, so I'm just saying, like, like, like if you're miserable at your job, like there are ways to find fulfillment and make a crap ton of money. Oh yeah, I so, just talked. I just talked to a guy today that was investment banking private equity left after ten months, and he sells like shoelaces. Like, <laughs> custom, custom made shoelaces. I'm like, this is a that's business. amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. See, I love. I I love stories like that. I love stories like that. <laughs> maybe he'll be a podcast guest in the future, but maybe uh, so that's watch awesome. out for that one. Listen, James, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story with everybody. It was it was fun. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. In this episode. James McKinney, host of the super popular podcast, The Startup Story, joins us to talk about his winding path and current success. From a finance and accounting major in undergrad at a non-target to losing it all, James shares some of the highs and lows along his journey, as well as this one career tip he'd give his younger self. Enjoy. Enjoy. 